Malika. Chris, how are you? I am delightful. Or I am, I I think I'm delightful. I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I am good as well. It is, the sun is coming out. Can't tell. I'm in a basement currently. The sun will come out in a minute. (laughs) Bet your bottom dollar that. Sorry. I'm a terrible singer. (laughs) That's okay. People are coming for the science, but they also get the benefit of a mini musical. Uh Uh-huh. I walked through the halls today singing um, just to fuck with undergrads (laughs) because nobody does that. And because um, I'm trying to be brave and do things uh, like play music out in front of people again. And I know I have a terrible voice and I never have had a good voice, but I'm punk rock. I grew up punk rock. It does not matter. Yeah. It's all about feeling. You don't need to have like pitch. What's pitch? Let's be honest, though. It (laughs) does matter. And I want to not sound as bad as I think I might. So I'm I'm (laughs) testing it out. I'm recording myself i'm doing things in front of humans and watching their faces so yeah you know chris i have a question would you ever consider being the live entertainment at the hbas (laughs) that could be dope not with the guitar (laughs) but you know i mean we have like we we've talked about this before like do they used to have uh, a talent Jim McKenna has told me stories of mm-hmm. tap dancing to distract the paleoanthropologists from fighting with each other back yep. in the 70s. <laughs> exactly. And, and you know, um, Jim Binden plays uh, bluegrass guitar. I used, he used to play it down in his office and stuff now, and that's that's sort of the direction. But But it would be really interesting just to find out what everyone's hidden talents are. Oh, absolutely. I am 100% here for bringing back the HBA talent show. Right on. I think the problem is that we have a few extroverts or like maybe I'm not even an extrovert. I'm just an exhibitionist. Yes. A performer, if you will. I like, I like to be, I like to be the center of attention. I don't necessarily have to, there doesn't have to be a there there. So like you and I could surely do it. And just like, we couldn't, we probably wouldn't get anyone else to do it. We're just like, oh, fuck. All right. It's like, I guess I'll guess I'll just watch what's happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But it has come up in, in executive committee meetings, and so um, we'll see. We'll see what we can uh, we can drum up. I am on that committee. You know, I do. I, I do can... have. I do have the power. There you go. I think that when we ask our guests, "What are your secret talents?" We can use that as a little bit of research <gasps> oh my God. to see if there would be interest for HBA talent show. We're we're not even going to be secret about it. We're just going to straight up say we're planning this thing so what would your talent be <laughs> crystal hasn't had the opportunity our guest today who crystal patil who we're going to introduce in just a second has not had the opportunity to think about that so this will be interesting so Perfect. speaking of which let me just pretend i didn't just say that malika who are we talking to today so today we are talking to dr crystal patil so dr patil has a phd in anthropology from ohio state university and her research focuses on how the social world becomes embodied and expressed as health, illness, or suffering. The motivation of her research stems from a concern of social justice, and she's doing some really amazing work implementing a lot of the research she's she's currently working on. Her research draws on ecological and social determinants frameworks to help make sense of the complex health-related problems. And she applies these models as she develops and tests strategies to reduce health disparities and strengthen health systems, both in the U.S. and Sub-Saharan Africa. 
Her mentoring focuses on fostering the productive careers of students and newer investigators. And it seems like she's done some really fantastic work with undergrads in particular, which I think we can all really learn from. She has several active research projects and is the recipient of several funding awards. So another great thing we can talk to her about. How do we get that good research money? Yeah, while also being uh, the department head of human developing and nursing science. I mean, she's she's doing a lot, a lot of hats, right? So so a couple of the things we often like sort of go back and forth with on this show is we'll bring in grad students or sometimes even undergrads who are just developing themselves. We'll bring in people who are getting their career started, maybe just got a job dissertation. But we also like to talk to senior folks, folks who were, you know, like I'm at mid, I would call them what I'm at is mid-career. But also, you know, we have Jason DeCaro on recently, who is my department chair, and talking to some of the folks about not just their research, but how they handle all of the things when you're wearing 27,000 hats. Because you're in a uh, John Hopkins in a yep. postdoc. Are you teaching yep. also? I am not teaching, but I have several students, undergraduate, masters, and medical students yeah. who work in my lab. So it's a different kind of mentorship, not anything I've really experienced before in graduate school, at least. But it's useful to like get exposure to all these different models of how people are basically keeping all these balls in the air. Cause, Absolutely. Um, and I, I think we can learn a lot from Dr. Patel. She actually just was nominated in 2022 by her peers at the UIC College of Nursing, a Distinguished Mentor Faculty Award. Yeah, she's very, very, very cool and easy. You're going to hear. You know her, right? I have not met her. Awesome. I love it when sometimes we get folks on here and we forget to introduce ourselves because one of us will know the person and the other one won't. It'll be like, oh, oh, you don't actually know each. And and then no one, our listeners would never know because we just start talking with people as though they're like our best buddies. (laughs) But I always like to talk about how the HBA workshops, even though sometimes when we go to meetings, we go to these workshops that happen during the lunch break after the poster sessions are not well attended because everyone is excited to see their friends when they go to lunch. They don't go to the workshops. That's the way they used to be. The last few years, they've been pretty well attended. But my point is, for two years in a row, I was one of like three people attending these workshops, and there were five people running the workshops. So there were more people running the workshops than were in the workshops. But in both cases, the workshops were so valuable to me in my career that even though I was a little embarrassed to be there, I got so much out of them. And I'd say this podcast is an indirect result of those because the first one was start a writing group and those people became the people that ultimately are who we started this with. The next year, I went to one of those workshops and it was with Crystal and that's where I met her. And she already knew. I think she knew who I was, which shocked me. I mean, I, I had a job and I'd presented and stuff, but I didn't know if people knew me. And not that that makes a difference to the world out there, right? But when you get recognized by your peers, it, yeah. it's pretty special. It feels yeah. good. It, it makes you feel like, you know, you're making a difference in your small co- corner of human biology. I don't know about difference, but it makes me feel at least seen. Yeah. Like, you know, and, and not just seen, but like she she knew, I think she knew a little bit about what I had present, like oh, had a familiarity of like the topic, which is, again, I'm like, I don't expect you to have any clue what I do. Or of who I am, you know, like. It's always so great to get that recognition from senior folks, even if they are maybe even a couple years senior to you. It feels like I'm not invisible. Right. 
you know, not everyone caricatures themselves to become visible. I consider myself a caricature of a college professor, right? <laughs> I'm wearing, those of you who can't see, I'm wearing a corduroy jacket. It does not have patches on the sleeves, but it is corduroy. I'm wearing a faux turtleneck, black. Excellent. Um, I have an ironic mustache. You know, I don't know what else to say about like a modern stereotype of a, of a college professor. But I, I, I think I'm it. And I do those things on purpose so people re will remember. Well, hi. <laughs> hi, we're so happy to have you here and that you're able to join and all the clicks worked. Thank you. I just heard the tail end. I, I, of course I know who you are, and you've been so active in the HBO. Oh, you can hear us talking. That's so funny. <laughs> so, no, I appreciate it, too, because um, I, that's why I love the HBA so much. It's just such a small family in many ways, and I feel like it's um, – actually, we'll talk about it, but, like, how I've deviated from starting off as human biology, but I still go to those meetings every year for, for that family, so – well, I love that you were actually there listening to us and hearing how we were prepping. So I'll just let Malika just jump in with the first question, then and we'll go. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. So we always want to know the scientists behind the science. So tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into anthropology, and then this transition that you made from biocultural and medical anthropology to intervention and implementation science. How did that all happen? Yeah, I do. I know you start off that way. And congratulations. I This might even be your fifth year of this program, right? I think it's, it might be the sixth, actually. And we're almost to 200. So you are probably like 190 or something like that. Yeah. Oh, that's what it was. It was close to 200. So congratulations on how, how much work you've done and sustained over time. Um, and like so many others, I, I came to anthropology because I took a class and I was like, oh, I didn't know it existed. So I kept taking classes as my gen eds. And then at some point I was like, okay, there's a reason. <laughs> and finally, after I think it was three courses that I took over the course of my freshman year, I switched my major to the shock of my parents who just were so worried about that. And some other mentors, of course, and they're like, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to be a professor of anthropology. And they're like, okay. Where are you from? Uh, I'm originally from the northern suburbs outside of Philadelphia. So it's called Bucks County. And then I went to a very small state school. It was amazing. They had four fields. I mean, I consider us much more than four fields, but um, all four fields, like that was their focus. So I took, I had linguistic, I had biological, I had cultural, I had archaeology. And so I started off in nutrition and archaeology for my master's work, actually. And so then tell us your path. How did, how did you get from, from there yeah. to here? But one of the things that's so interesting is the many hats you're wearing. Like as we advance up the food chain, they give us more hats. And then how do we keep them all on our heads at the same time? You've got a lot right now. Well, gosh, you're right about that one. So I went to Ohio State um, and my focus for my master's uh, was really archaeology and ethnobotany. So I always had an interest in the nutrition piece. And then um, Ivy Pike, who became my PhD advisor, uh, came to Ohio State and her job talk just changed my world. And so she gave her job talk. And the second she was hired, I'm like, can I be your advisee? <laughs> um, and of course, she took me on. And that's when I switched over to human biology. And that work for my dissertation was foundational for everything that I'm doing because I got so lucky um, to get a Fulbright to live in Tanzania for more than a year. 
basically doing ethnographic biocultural. So I was very interested in pregnancy, reproductive outcomes, nutrition, kind of pulling all the many things together. But that meant I was working with women. I was banging the sunflower seed heads to come to get the seeds out. I went with them to their prenatal care appointments. Um, how do they raise their babies? How do they engage with their neighbors? How do they engage with their family members? And so I really got to know 40 people really well over the course of an 18, 16 month stay there. So it was that foundational ethnographic work that really set the stage for being able to take anthropology in new directions. And so much of that early work was um, things like the experience of nausea and vomiting and pregnancy. So much of it was about food and breastfeeding. Um, and so having that very deep knowledge about the local environment and food is when I got tapped by uh, a large international project, uh, and that's known as the Malady Project. And so that really introduced me to team science, and it also connected me with a second mentor who's just all about taking women to the next stage. So her name was Laura Caulfield. She's at Johns Hopkins in um, their international nutrition. So that was another big shift. As I listen to you describe breaking sunflower seeds and stuff, and I, I'm a gardener, so I, I like my mind is automatically like, oh my God, I just did. <laughs> I have calluses from uh, seeding the other day. You know, like it's it's intense and tedious and, and it's min the kind of minutia that if you've never done it, you're just like, how, what, what are they doing with all their time? And these are not with their hands. We were we would stand there with the big old sunflower heads, you know, the big ones, and just like uh -huh. beat them with a stick. And then it was just all fall over onto a tarp and collect them up. And some for this, some for that, some for grinding to oil. So yeah, a lot of those um, work activities and the nutrition part, right? Like learning how to cook food. Huh? Yes. Um, just and all. Oh my gosh, how many different types of leafy greens there are <laughs> I just couldn't even track um can you tell us a little so that's what I'm, I'm like on the one hand I want to go to your studies but on the other hand it's really important to give listeners a sense of where and it's really hard without going there but can you give us a little sense of yeah. who are you work these 40 people you got to know really well maybe let's do a it's, it's a disservice because you can't summarize their lives in a second, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about them and, and the insights they, they gave you. I'm also curious, as someone who, who did field work in a place that also had a lot of very delicious leafy greens when I was working in the central Congo basin, have you been able to find any of those very specific forest greens and African greens in the United States? And uh, <laughs> who is your shipper, if you could buy that? Okay, that the final answer to that one is no. Um, but what I, I did start to learn is like, you know, where there's parallels. So, you know, that's where that's the only way to go. But no, no shippers, uh, no, no greens from East Africa coming in. And so many of them are actually wild. So we've got the, you know, the wild greens. But the area I worked in is in north central Tanzania, which is in what's called the Highlands. And so the Great Rift Valley is familiar to most people. I mean, everyone knows where Olduvai Gorge is, I think. Um, so not far from Olduvai Gorge, but before you get to the Olduvai Gorge, there's these series of escarpments. And so um, I was at, I, on top of the last escarpment before you looked into the, the gorge. And the cultural groups are very mixed, but still, you know, we've got sort of this traditional naming system. So the Iraq, 
are primarily who I work with. Um, and it's a rock spelled with a Q, but with a W at the end. So you say it with a little bit of a at the end. And the Datoga are in that area. And there's also other ethnic groups, but um, those were the two that I had most of my engagements with. And the Iraq are more agro-pastoral and the Datoga consider themselves to be pastoral. In reality, everybody was agricultural plus animals if they could. Um, but that like mental association with who they are is, is, is sort of that traditional cultural thing. And what language are you speaking with them? So I learned Swahili, which is the national language. So one of the benefits of, of that is that you can speak across the board. Most people learn Swahili through school. So all of their education system for primary um, was in Swahili. Not that everybody went to school, but most people spoke a little bit of Swahili. Not everybody. Um, and then each of those two, each ethnic group speaks their own language, which would be Kirak. Kidatoga and a couple of other languages. And then they, of course, know multiple languages among themselves. But the Swahili was what I learned and with a little bit of a rock in there. So when you made the transition to big teen science, yeah. how did your collaborators take all of this deep ethnographic knowledge that you were bringing to the table? You know, you have this language knowledge, you have this understanding of the different cultural groups. What was that? What was that like? So this was for just one of those random meetings, there was someone coming to um, do this giant malady project. And so I had organized a workshop for dissemination of our research at the local level. And this person attended and was like, wow, you really know a lot about food. Um, and we need to train our very large team to collect 24-hour recall data um, and also do anthropometric measures. And of course, I had done that in my dissertation work. And so they then hired me on to be their trainer for um, for 24-hour recall and anthropometrics. And so one of the benefits they got from me, I guess, was that I had everything translated already into multiple languages. So I had the English, Swahili, and local language for many of the foods that helped with their survey development. And also I had done some mental health work as well. And so they were also collecting mental health stuff. So they just built me right into their team. They also then sent me to South Africa. So then I got to experience doing field work in a entirely different country where I do not speak the language. That was a bonus. So I want to ask about, I think, and you can, you can correct me if I'm wrong. You sent us a, like a bunch of great articles. I really want to talk about... Um, hone in on what Malika is referencing in this transition to not just doing anthropology as like a description, but more applied implementation and intervention. And the articles walk us through the development, a pilot study and an implementation evaluation. So I had the fortune in grad school to take classes in public health and program evaluation. So these were familiar to me. And then I've also been a research assistant for uh maternal health researcher, Michaela Howell. So I actually got to see the clinic settings and understand, I understand the importance of prenatal care and some of the issues that they faced in American Samoa, but you have a diff similar but a different set of problems. So I wonder if you could describe the problems, the importance, and then tell us what innovations you guys have developed, because they're pretty cool. I do have my foundations in understanding the health system in that um, Fulbright time. So one of the things I did was go with women to prenatal care. And every time it would be, here we go, walk two, two and a half hours, some walk four hours for, you know, your 
devoting this amount of time to go and literally sit for hours. And so we'd be in the waiting room. There's very little engagement between the pregnant people. Then someone might stand up and give a lecture that day on uh, vitamin A. And then you would go over here, get your weight measured, sit back down and wait. Go over here, get your blood pressure measured, sit back down and wait. And then you get called back to see the midwife and you see this midwife for about anywhere from two to five minutes of time. Very little in the way of speaking or just, you know, just low engagement in many ways, because it's kind of like they have so many people they're trying to get through. So you just feel like you're just part of a, you know, a cog in the wheel. And so then I would, I would just turn to the woman and be like, what do you get out of this? <laughs> and they're like, well, I know the baby's okay. And I was like, how did you know that? You know, I just couldn't make the, the leap. And so then I started learning that they, they would read into subtle body language. So if the midwife kind of looked like she was startled or worried, they would interpret that. And so then they would make decisions like, well, I'll go back next time and see. And then I also had the privilege of being um, able to serve as a doula for the women. And so I would accompany women to their births. And in doing that, then I really got to know the midwifery staff. And so midwives provide the prenatal care. They do almost all of the deliveries unless it's an emergency. And that's when they would call in the next person, you know, like an OB or, or in there, it was called a clinical officer. And so I got to know all of them as well and realized that the body language that they might be conveying isn't necessarily aligning with anything with this patient, right? So, and we all, we would know this, but it was just so, the, the um, importance of patient provider engagement really rose to the top for me. And that's where I was like, this can be done better. And I didn't, I just couldn't figure out what the intervention was going to be, but I knew that something had to change with prenatal care. And so then I came back to the U.S. and I, you know, had a series of postdocs and then I landed here at UIC in the anthropology department. And one of the first projects that we did was figuring out where people make, how they make decisions about where to give birth, because at that time, safe motherhood was a big deal. I mean, it's still a big deal, but that was called the Safe Motherhood Initiative. We've gone to the Millennium Development Goals. Now we're in the Sustainable Development, you know, like whatever the international policy is, um, flavor of the decade, we were in it. So we got Wenigren funding uh, to sort of use that um, as an opportunity to understand decision-making. And again, antenatal care came up. Antenatal care was important for deciding where to give birth. If they thought there was a problem, they would go to the facility. And so, you know, again, I kept seeing this antenatal care as sort of a centerpiece for women. And I came back and taught a course with... um, uh, another human biologist, Elizabeth Abrams, or actually she taught the course. We helped co-develop this course, but got introduced to a nursing student who was taking an anthropology of infant feeding course. And this anthropology student said, I know an intervention for you all. You need to come to the College of Nursing and meet this group. They're doing what's called Centering Pregnancy here in Chicago. And when I found out about group prenatal care, which is when about eight to 10 women come to all of their prenatal care visits together, they purposely um, have health promotion activities. So it's interactive learning, not lecturing at people. I was like, oh, that's it. That's the key. This this is what we need to do in Tanzania. And then this group in uh, the College of Nursing had also been working in Malawi. And that's how I got the connections to Malawi. So we did our pilot work to adapt what was a Western and, um, you know, very grounded in U.S. midwifery kind of health promotion um, curriculum. But the reality is that 
prenatal care across the world is pretty much the same when it comes to health promotion. So we took those materials, we worked with colleagues in both countries and did some fairly what I would call sort of minor adaptations from a health promotion point of view. And then we piloted it in both places and the midwives loved it. The women loved it. And so that's how we were able to establish that this was feasible, acceptable. And that is what brought us to the current project, which is both an effectiveness study and an implementation study. And so implementation science, I absolutely love because over these many, many years of doing research, we we have so many interventions that we know of that never go anywhere. So you spend a lot of money to have interventions that show to be effective and, and make impact, but there's no way to sustain them because the project comes in, proves this, and they walk out. And so I never wanted this group prenatal care project to be one of those drop in and fly out type projects. And so we've been keeping our eye on seamless integration. And I put seamless in air quotes because seamless is, I mean, it's an oxymoron to be calling it that. We, we wanted to find the best way to see how to do this in a system that it's not super compatible with, with on the structural side. And so we're working really hard to do that. And so now we're in the fifth year. And what we're finding is the six clinics that we are working at in Blantyre District, Malawi, they love it. They want to sustain it. And um, we did a lot of technical assistance all along the way to set them up for that success. And so far out of the six clinics, all six of them are continuing with group prenatal care, um, even though they're not part of our randomized clinical trial anymore for the um, effectiveness part of this. So this question might get a little bit in the weeds, um, but that's the whole point of this podcast is we can do that. Um, I'm really curious, was there any sort of local kind of compensation for the fact that going to the clinics was this very mysterious process or do they have some sort of thing that they did as a local community so you're not walking two and a half hours for information well you know during pregnancy women are highly motivated to ensure that this pregnancy is healthy and that their birth is going to be safe and this is you know now i get to wear my little bit of my critical anthropologist hat a colonial endeavor Prenatal care really is um, part of that importing of external ways of the Western medical system. But there's full buy-in for this. And it's almost, there. there is no preventive care right now. I'm not sure if it's the same in Samoa or in, in Congo. Preventive care doesn't exist. So prenatal care, you're not sick. You're, you're, you know, it really is a form of preventive care for the first time. What I learned on the ground is that occasionally women do organize a social group and they walk together. Uh, oh my gosh, can I tell a really funny anecdote? So from my dissertation research, talk about walking together, a woman was at the hospital and somehow I found out. So I am in the hospital be- serving as her doula and I just happened to look out the door and her neighbor walks by and is going into the room. So she's about to have birth. So I walk out of that room to go over and greet her and tell her that I was there. And I then look to my left again and I see their third neighbor. These Three neighbors all gave birth on the same day. That's amazing. I don't know how that happened. But the point is that that was an accidental social moment for the three of us. But they would also, you know, organize and walk to prenatal care together. Sometimes there was that social piece of it. But in terms of providing money, um, that is a different intervention that's come along more recently about, um, you know, offering people compensation for coming to care. 
that was not um, going on when I was there, but they were free services. So you aren't paying to get services, um, but you, it costs you in time and energy. I'd like to ask a follow-up question about the the sustainability that you mentioned, because that you're right. That's the hardest part of any project, even on our campuses where we have all of the we have all the cell phones and all of the bells and all of the whistles, right? And yet you still can't sustain a program without human motivation, human investment. And so they bought into the sort of biomedicalization or the colonialization of it, and there's probably historical reasons that we could unpack. But the the piece that always fails in bureaucracies like this is, oh, here's a shiny new thing. Now maintain it for how do we maintain this? And then what do we do with all the parts when they're broken and all that kind of stuff? So I'm actually curious about that, because as you know, we, we had the same a similar experience or I'm pretty sure it was the current standing senator who ripped us a new one in the clinic for being drop in anthropologists. We had just gotten there and it wasn't us, but we took it. We took it as a. A warning. They they want you to stay here and show that what you're doing is for them and not just for you. And part of that is signaled by at least staying here a week and not just being here and leaving. And so, what what are the steps that you do to ensure that sort of relationship it, that they trust that you're invested in them? And then, what are the actual pieces that you have maybe or or an example or a model for how to develop a sustainable program where the pieces last. Big ask. Yeah, and so important, and it is so much, uh, I don't even know where to begin, but th this is a team that has collaborators on the ground. So we have researchers from universities at, at the time in Tanzania and in Malawi who are co-eyes and co-PIs on this grant. So it's, it's built with that from the start, Having them as the leads and they know their political systems better than I do was sort of the first step, right? And that's that team science part that, that allowed us to get a grant together. But the buy-in on the ground and knowing those political systems. So we have district level, we have ministry of health level. So we've engaged with them from day one to um, talk about this not as a project. And so part of it was strategy and the vocabulary we use because grants are projects in many times and that's how it's seen. Oh, a project has a time period and it ends. So our, our whole strategy has been that prenatal care can be done differently. We don't know how to do it. You will know how to adapt best your systems. Let's figure out if this works for your system and what some of the difficulties are in, in then being able to own it. The words we use behind our project were not project, ownership of a new model of care. And it sort of helped. We still have the same issues. So when we would go back annually and visit with Ministry of Health, District of District Health offices, it'd still be like, and so when's the next grant coming in to support this, you know? And we're like, well, when you're going to own it so we can then evaluate it, you know, like we would play these games. I love that. And I just want to, I just want to interject how much I love that and why, because I was on a, a webinar with an indig indigenous healers yesterday talking about the words and how the words, when we use colonial words that already, it takes us into a colonial mindset. So project is this drop-in thing that we do and we go away with and it's ours. So just choosing a different word, you're blowing my mind. Thank you. Keep going. And that it, it didn't translate well. I mean, it, it didn't. It didn't um, because all the patterns 
preparation, um, sort of raising awareness of what's happening, all feel like, oh, a project's coming in and then they're going to leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it took us all the four years of preparation and that, well, preparation was about year one. And then the three years of very intensive technical assistance to, to pulling away our technical assistance. And so it was a slowly removing ourselves. And by ourselves, I mean our entire team. You know, then it would be like, well, if you have trouble, call someone from our team and we'll help you problem solve about this implementation issue. Exciting part is that in uh, March or April, we're going back to do a dissemination celebration, we're calling it, (laughs) versus workshop. Um, Again, trying to choose our words wisely. And so we want to celebrate the um, success report, what we would call the findings, because there was this RCT, the clinical trial that was embedded in the middle. And then we still have some major implementation hurdles to overcome. And we want to, this celebration is going to be sort of a few minutes of data and a few minutes of experiences, a few minutes of data and a few minutes of experience. So we're really being strategic in bringing the emotional part of how impactful offering care that's high quality and is engaging mattered to the midwives who talk about this as they they are finally being able to practice as they were taught. That's what is exciting for them. They're seeing the impact of this prenatal care education when they run into them again at birth, for example, they're like, oh, we always know the ones who are in group because they know how to speak for themselves. So there's part of our group health promotion activities are about um, being able to express yourself and how to speak to your midwife in a way that gets what you need done. And then we're going to ask people who went through the group prenatal care to come and talk about their experience. And part of ours allowed for partners to come. So we're going to ask some of the partners to come and talk about their experience. And then because in many countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, actually probably most uh, low and middle income countries, you have a shortage of providers when we do in the US. Because of that shortage, we paired each midwife with a community, we call them a community volunteer, but it's kind of the equivalent of a community doula or community health worker here. And there's a big movement in the US for um, this postpartum sort of doula and um, and also um, birth doulas, but we sort of did it in the prenatal phase. And so they got paired with this midwife. And so the two of them were, were running the groups together. So we're also going to ask them to come and talk about their experiences. And so they've gained a lot of knowledge, number one, but they've also gained sort of a version of respect and community. And so they felt very attached to their community in a new way by serving in this um, role. All of these experiences and the meaning and how it's changed their lives personally, but then how they see it at a population health level is what we're, we're going to try and meld in this dissemination celebration. That's amazing. We've talked quite a bit about how you wear all of these different hats. And it seems clear to me as an external person that your research is feeding into the hot mess that is administrative work at a university and so I'm, I'm just curious, like we're, you know, we're whole people. We are both researchers doing this really amazing work, but we also have to exist within a university system that has many of the same hurdles of like, how do we implement work? How do we get grants to go through? How, how do we make sure that the science we're doing is meaningful and has outcomes? Like, should we be having dissemination celebrations with our labs, with our students? I, what, what are your thoughts on that? I believe that a celebration at any time is acceptable. 
<laughs> so, <laughs> Speaking my language. Yeah. As a department head, I I build in a couple of places for celebration, which is every faculty meeting we start off with any success. And it doesn't have to be only the academic currency, you know, like I have a grandchild, I have a child, you know, because that whole person part, I don't think work should be family. I, I do compartmentalize my life very intentionally. Um, but in that moment, I still try to share the humanness that I am. And I hope that and I want to create situations where people feel that for themselves. So celebrating at the beginning of a faculty meeting, always share, share something good. And then in between I our faculty meetings, I send out a newsletter. And in that newsletter, I also celebrate these things, mostly the academic currency, but so yeah, celebrating always, you know, um, because I think the little things matter. I got like reading a new article is a celebration at this point, because as a department head, uh, as a person who's on about five projects at once, um, you know, fitting in something small is, is something to celebrate. So I don't I know, doing all of the different things as you move along in this career. So the beginning of your career is very self-focused and trying to just get through and survive it. And I think it's because all of the parts are new. When you're writing a dissertation, you're just, that is the most self-centered time of your life in terms of you don't really have to do a lot for other people. You're really trying to get it done. And then they land, you know, you land in a job or a postdoc and it becomes, oh wait, I have to worry about students. I have to know how to write a syllabus and figure out really creative ways to teach while I'm supposed to read new stuff and do all that writing. I mean, (laughs) Like you said, as you move along, you also then throw in more and more service along the way. And so really learning to be efficient and celebrate the wins, got to. I love that. I'm pro-celebration here. <laughs> I, I I always think about the lessons I've learned over time. And so this doctor came in to my anthropology office when I was over there, throws um, the book, The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down on my on my table. And he's like, you are an anthropologist. I just read this book. You can help me. I was like, let's back up. And he's, he's telling me that he is a um, sickle cell disease. So hey, monk doc, and that he just really liked to better understand his patients. And that reading that book helped him like think about care from, from the patient point of view. So here we are again at the patient provider intersection. Right. And I was like, but I don't know anything. I, I'm like, I know this about sickle cell disease because I teach it in biological anthropology I feel like everything we know is out there. It's done. What What do you mean? I, 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 Where are we going with this? He convinced me that there was more to do. And so I was like, well, the only way I can think about adding another project is if I build it into my course on methods. And so that's what I did. And I had 20 students and we broke down into groups of five. And with proper training, of course, Students were then uh, signing up to go sit in the clinic and then approach patients um, who were there for their typical clinic visit to see if they could do an interview about what is your life like living with this chronic disease. And so we had very open-ended questions that left a lot of room, um, which was on purpose because new interviewers always have trouble with qualitative interviews. So we wanted these to be very big questions that wouldn't have to have them, you know, know a lot, but not require a lot of major probing because that takes time. And so then these groups of students would, the, the group of four or five people 
each would do a couple of interviews. They had to transcribe them and then they did their first pass analysis. Then the small groups got together and they pulled them together and they then came up with their own themes. So we had each group had about 10 interviews or so that they were pulling from. Um, and then they presented what they learned to the class. I mean, it was amazing. And I had no idea how much I didn't know about sickle cell disease and what it was like to live with it because I don't know about you, but when I taught it, I ignored the sickle cell disease as a chronic condition part of the story and really emphasized the the evolutionary success side, which is, and now I'm volunteering to give a lecture on sickle cell disease in your class. Um, <laughs> it's so important to tell the story because um, this is a, I mean, the, the, this disease is so powerful and people are in pain every day. Wow. You know, and when you say pain, the average pain score on a scale of zero or one to 10, it's like three to four. So I can't even, that was what was so powerful about the stories that the students collected was trying to translate the pain experience in, to other people who don't have it. And they would draw on things like, well, if you've had a migraine, it's like a migraine and having a baby at the same time. Oh, <laughs> wow. Like, okay, I've done both of those things. It really hurts. And I can't imagine them together. So, so pain Olympics, I don't even know it can be escalated. I mean, beyond. So that's the only way people could tell us what they were feeling is to just give you a piece of something you might be able to relate to. So we learned so much about pain, um, how hard it is to express it. And that relates to many of the things that we read about in medical anthropology about pain. And so I was able to pull together sort of the biomedical approach and then the social science humanities approach to really get a deeper understanding of pain. But the student part of this was that the, the impact on those students for doing a project like that, where you're actually connecting with people and, um, so many of them write to me years later to say, well, that gave me, you know, the, the ability to be able to talk to people I don't know about very personal issues. Like it, it helped them grow as individuals. Um, but the one student who ended up converting to publication, I can't take credit for the student. You know, I don't know if you've had it, but in every 10 years, you have the student who's 10 times smarter than you as an undergrad. <laughs> This student, Rebecca, she's just brilliant. Um, and so she was part of this project from her through her undergrad and into her master's program. And so she stuck with it the whole time. And actually, she I believe she just graduated with a PhD in medical anthropology focused on sickle cell disease. Amazing. Well, I don't know if she graduated. I think she did. I, I've lost touch with her over the years, but she's her own brilliant self. And so we collaborated and... She got the idea for the core of it from her theory course and said, well, let's apply this to answer to this work. And so then we re-looked at the transcripts and through the lens of this visibility and invisibility thing. And it was just as there was a movement to really being to state the impact of racism in healthcare. So it was right at the the turning wow. point for that. So it was just one of those. Brilliant students, perfect timing, and a great idea. So I have to give all the credit to her because she was she's just brilliant. She was in my Intro to Medical Anthropology course before this methods course. And, I mean, she wrote something so amazing. And I just remember turning back her paper and being like, are you going to be a PhD student in anthropology? Because if you haven't decided, you should be. <laughs> and I don't know if that's <laughs> like or not, but, like, she was – she's just brilliant. Amazing. So we have a really great question where, where we are um... – 
piloting this question, if you will, to see if it, we can keep asking it for uh, future podcasts. So we are thinking of bringing back the HBA talent show. If you were asked to participate in the HBA talent show, what would your talent be? Oh my gosh, I'm the worst person to pilot this. <laughs> because my talents are in gardening. Um, and I guess I would bring pictures of my gardening because I love my flowers. I love my vegetables. So an actual talent show, uh, you don't want me to sing, even though I'll sing to myself. No problem. <laughs> I can't play instruments very well. Um like, I always think of talent show as actually something live and in the moment. So, you know what? I'm here for it. I think that what what, what you should do is just come to the meetings with two gigantic zucchinis and yep. be like, this is it. This is my talent. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And my favorite, my, I, I don't grow anything crazy or anything, but I just call it my salsa garden. So I create, I create salsas in the summer. So Amazing. just how many different kinds of salsas. So <laughs> love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a really great conversation and I feel like your projects are just growing. So maybe we'll have you back. Um, and thank you again. Thank you for having me and congratulations to you all. Like I said in the beginning for an amazing um, podcast and so much fun. Absolutely. So uh, for those of you who want to know more about Dr. Patel's work, uh, where can they find you? On my website. Okay. I do have I do have Twitter still. So I'm at CL Patel, but um, um, mostly I keep things updated on my, my website. And I'm one of those people that people can approach anywhere, anytime, anyplace, open door, open email, whatever policy. So I welcome um, students, anybody. Perfect. And if you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at Sky Mall. That's S-K-Y-Y underscore mall at M-A-L uh, on Twitter and also my personal website, which is just my name. And to find Chris, he is also on Twitter at Chris underscore L-Y. His microphone is not working, so I am saying goodbye for him. So thank you all so much for listening and we will see you soon. Thank you so much. This was really fun. I'm not the one who's got the best of all the time.